Good evening. What's the highlight of the week? Thank you for joining us again tonight. This is MIT Podcast. MIT stands for Mindset into Transformation. I'm Benjamin Huang, your host tonight. Here we have conversation with people who have done extraordinary things in their life. We discuss the story of success and the mindset drive them into achieving the impossible. Many people may know multifamily apartment syndication in real estate, but you may not know self storage syndication. And it is powerful and also it has great potential to serve you in your portfolio. Today, I was so honored to be able to invite one of the best indicator, in my opinion, in self-storage space to come in, offer an insight, introduction, you know, to you on what you may have not learned about anything in self-storage. AJ Osborne is the CEO of Cedar Creek Wealth, one of the fastest growing self-storage syndications fund in the nation with over 50 employees. AJ also wrote the go-to books on self-storage, the investor guide to growing wealth in self-storage and host the number one self-storage podcast, the self-storage income podcast. AJ, thank you so much for coming today. How are you? Doing great. Happy to be on, man. Awesome, AJ. Um, before we start, give people a little um, introductions on um, what's your first first deal look like on in real estate did you just get into commercial real estate or your initial story right so how did you get started yeah so i skipped you know uh, single family homes and the reason mainly is we got started prior to 2008 and at, at the time i actually was very interested in small multifamily, right um and that was because that was the thing right? Everybody was fourplexes, duplexes. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we couldn't make the numbers work. And so we didn't understand how people were buying properties. We didn't understand because I was a sales guy. I sold insurance and everything we did was a cash basis, right? So we got paid commissions. And mm -hmm. uh, so when we looked at properties, we were having to put a huge amount down and they weren't even cash flowing. We didn't understand. So we looked at, um, we looked at some other assets and then we saw self-storage. Now at the time, self-storage was basically considered a junkyard. Like nobody invested in self-storage. It was this weird asset class. Banks didn't like to lend on it. Um, and because of that, uh, mm -hmm. they traded at really high cap rates in small markets. And so we went into small markets and yeah. started buying up self-storage facilities because they could provide great cash flow. Um, now, it was hard to get financing. It took a long time. So a lot of the deals were seller financing, right? Um, a lot of the deals were very much locked into our assets on the personal guarantee side. Um, banks just didn't feel that comfortable with them. We had to use local banks um, and credit unions that more understood mm -hmm. the localized area uh, to get financing to try to grow right. these things. And so, yeah, we kind of bypassed single family homes and that. And now a lot of people assume that means we just went huge, but that's actually not true. We were going into small markets where we, you, you're buying these things at, you know, a couple of few hundred thousand dollars. So it's not like uh, a lot of people mistakenly think commercial means skyscrapers. 
that's not at all true. Uh, I had, I had a guy that was telling me just the other day, they're like, right. yeah, I can't get in commercial. I'm going to start into single family homes or buy duplexes, uh, because you know, I don't have the financial wherewithal to go into commercial. And I'm like, well, I right now have a storage facility in Colorado that has 50 doors locked up for a hundred and it's like $80,000. And I go, how much are you buying duplexes for? And he's like, 400,000. And I'm like, Double. so, you know, uh, you get two doors for 400,000. You can buy two. Of I those. get 50 doors with 150, 80,000. Exactly. Uh, and that really, I think you could see it in his face. It was like shocking. It, 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 he didn't understand that. And I think there's some very big misconceptions around commercial real estate uh, like that. So yeah, it made I it see, easy I for see. us to scale. So uh, is it is it? I see. Is it fair to say your um, your first project you recognize that's going all over? You know, from other like where other people started, like single family, small multi, um, would not would not be time efficient or um, yes. Right. I mean, is, is, is that the primary reason why you get into commercial and without any fear? Yeah. So not only not time efficient, but there's a scalability problem. So I always look at the end in mind. And when you looked at single family, um, there is a big problem with scale. So when I'm looking at scale, I should see mm -hmm. very large improvements as I add per unit basis on. So every property that I add I should see improvements and I should see ability to reinvest into the business, margins get bigger, things like that. Um, in single family homes, it actually tended to be that after you got so many and you wanted to even go bigger and go more and do more, it's, it has a very big scalability problem. The margins aren't big uh, for the capital that you're getting. And I'm talking on cash flow. So the idea to scale in single family homes would be you're going to sell right. it, you're going to refine it, right? It, but the, the actual operations day to day, it had a very big scale problem. Just because you got more deals didn't mean and you're hiring on more employees, things like that. It, the amount of units and the amount of purchases and the amount of everything to get people to help you buy, do more business on the business side, it just isn't that efficient at all. Awesome. Awesome. So you mentioned about scalability. Um, what's your portfolio currently look like and like what kind of scale that your company is focusing on right now? Are you, are you only focusing on self-storage right now? Yeah, so great question. Right right now, my uh, portfolio, we just actually did the numbers. It was like yesterday. Um, we have over at a five cap, we have over 300 million in assets. Um, portfolios like mine sell for four caps. Um, and we refinance at six. So, so I used five. So nice. over 300 million, we have on that around 33% of that is debt. Um, we're across 10 different States. Um, that's roughly 2.6, I think million net rentable square feet, uh, over 10,000 wow. doors. Um, and, uh, uh, we have 80 plus employees, um, and we focus solely on storage right now. Um, we do own different types of commercial. I do own office. We own light industrial. We actually own properties that, um, have triple net tenants like, um, restaurants in them. 
Um, but the vast 99.9% of everything we do is storage. And yes, that is currently our focus area and will continue to be through these times. Mm, I see. Um, what should uh, what should people look at uh, self-storage? I mean, can you give us a little color on how it's operated, what the business model look like, what's the common challenges and how you you know, look at the deal. Yeah. So there's a few reasons I think people should look at self-storage. First and foremost is self-storage is the newest real estate asset class in the market. So a lot of the inventory on the market is owned by mom and pops. Let me share an example. Uh, roughly you have 60% of the entire industry is owned by single owner mom and pops. Whereas like multifamily, 80% of the entire industry is owned by institutions. So it is not like, so that means you're competing with everyone over really a, you know, 20% or less of the inventory on the market. Plus you are uh, competing with really well capitalized people and you're dealing with uh, efficient operators. Um, so there's less inventory. There's more uh, storage facilities than there are McDonald's and Starbucks and everything combined. It's there everywhere. And you can start out small in self-storage. You don't need so it's that price comparison, right? Like I talked to some people, I'm like, all right, if you were to buy 300 units, right? Actual doors in Phoenix, you know, what would that cost you in multifamily? And this is a first tier market, you know, everything else. They're like, oh, I don't know, hundreds of millions, maybe, maybe 200 million plus, you know, if you're going to develop out hundreds of doors, you're talking about, um, you know, at the building cost and everything today, I'm not sure exactly what that equates to, but you're, for storage, that's under 5 million. And mm -hmm. you go into not first tier markets and it's way less than that. You can pick up 50 doors for nothing, right? Um, so your ability to enter into the market, there's much lower barriers of entry than other major real estate commercial asset classes. There's more inventory. There's more mom and pops. They're easier to buy. The price point makes it more easy for people starting out to buy and they're very sticky. So they are not that complex. And the um, overall uh, effects of getting things wrong are minimized on the storage facility. Uh, so you're not dealing with people, right? You have their junk mm -hmm. on the floor and evictions, very easy to do. Um, it's, you know, what really you got to look at on storage is the back end side, the business. We view storage as a business, not a, um, uh, uh, not a real estate asset. Right. And so, mm -hmm. you know, when we look at that, that really makes the difference. And, um, so, you know, when we look, uh, at, at it compared to other, uh, asset classes for beginners, we think that there's amazing enter entries into the market. Right. And so, you know, you know, thinking about it, obviously I think my, my apartment comparison isn't hundreds of millions. It's less than that. Uh, but it is, you know, still, no matter how you look at it, it's roughly like 10 times, right. Or different less. Mm -hmm. So, uh, that's what the underlying thesis for me, for people getting into the business, it's ability to, and, uh, um, get it, actually get it to actually end up with ownership and get into the game, I think is much easier in storage than it is, uh, other commercial mm -hmm. assets. Yeah. Multi. Got it. Got it. So, <clears throat> so one thing you talk about was, um, you can get in, you know, uh, in those asset class, 
in a fairly lower uh, price point, right? So one common argument for people who are doing multifamily is that, yes, you can buy smaller multi, but you would not have the margin to hire a property manager mm -hmm. to run your property. It will basically be active, not passive. Yes. Right? So um, do you do you get the same challenge say if you were to start with smaller multi like how how's the operation side yeah the like? operation side I, how i look at it is on the complexity of the asset um multi-family or any other ones like so if you look at the probably like the most passive right would be like triple net leasing and large commercial if you're triple net leasing large warehouse stuff to amazon that's pretty passive and you can really you know, do big and things like that. Storage is not that way. It's not. When people think of it as being passive, they think of that because there's no toilets, right? They're like, oh, there's nobody living in it. But operationally speaking, storage is not passive. Um, you have short-term contracts. People are coming in and out. We're selling products and goods. You're utilizing it. And to get a property manager to come in and really take care of all the operations, um, then yeah, it does need to be a little bigger and it needs to be in a market that, that, um, can hold it. And I think that's generally too, though, uh, true starting out people that start out in real estate that want what we, I would consider and to be truly passive, they need to invest with somebody else because real estate is not truly passive unless you just have so much money. It right. doesn't matter. Um, and then you can hire a third-party management company to do everything, right? And you buy big mm -hmm. assets that can afford to pay it. Outside that, I do not believe that commercial real estate, if you're doing it, is passive when starting mm -hmm. out. You want it passive, you want to get in the asset class, invest along with other people that will do the work. Right, just like invest in syndication, be the limited yes, partners. exactly. And invest, understand the process. But you, you got to have the capital. Yes. Right. So AJ, um, uh, with your with your expertise and experience, what would like when you're looking at the deal, how many do doors or how many square footage would be the uh, kind of the the border for you to say, yeah, this will afford one uh, property manager or two of uh, property manager, or yeah. is that a logic? So it it, it makes sense. Like I understand what you're asking. In storage, work it's kind of weird because. When you look at storage, right, doors don't translate like the other real estate asset classes. So if you're looking at like multifamily hotels, right, a door is a door, generally speaking. You may have three different types. Okay, two bedroom, one bath, three bedroom, uh, one bath, three bedroom, two bath, right? But in storage, we may have 15 different type units and the range in which you get for them could be astronomically different. You could be renting one for 50 bucks a month and the other one for a thousand bucks a month. Um, it's so you do not have uh, like standardized market pricing and somebody could have 300 doors in one storage facility and 300 doors in the storage facility right next door. Right. And that can be total two totally different things like the, the revenues and everything associated with it. Also, because some doors are relatively big compared. If you had a facility that were all five by fives and you had 300 doors, 
that as opposed to a facility that had 10 by 20s and there were and they were 300 doors the size of those facilities are tremendously uh, different so when we look at it we're really looking at net rentable square feet and that's why we use that term in self storage the reason being is it says how much square feet are you actually renting as opposed to the doors so when we look at it really under 50,000 net rentable square feet um, right. Those are smaller deals that you need to automate. You need to bring in technology. You need to do things a little differently. 50 to 100,000 net rentable square feet. Those are the midsize assets. Um, and then you're getting up to where you can have third party management, everything like that, just fine. And 100,000 plus square feet is the big boys. Those are the big assets, right? You're talking about um, big, your 600 plus doors right? Um, and, uh, you know, high, high revenue. Um, so when we look at it for us, our model, so our entire business model is we call it the bird, not the burr. We buy increase, right? We reduce risk through first refinancing and taking our money out. So we get our capital and our mm -hmm. profits out. Then we put it into what is called a non-recourse loan. That means I am not liable for the loan anymore. So I get my capital out and profits. I've reduced risk exposure over my investment. And then I reduce risk on the debt side as well. And then we do it again. And that's our bird model. So because of that, I'm generally looking at turnaround facilities that are 60 plus thousand square feet in growing second tier markets. Um, that's where we excel at. And that's what we do a really good job at. And we own the, uh, we, I know people say vertically integrated, but we're rolling out a concept that um, we've coined uh, universally integrated. And what that means is we are a firm that owns all pieces of the operation of it. So not just the property management company, but also the tech, right? We also own the um, branding, we own every single piece of it that goes into moving and operating it. And that gives us a lot of efficiencies, a lot of scale, right? Mm -hmm. We do things in storage that you do like in airlines, like dynamic pricing. So every day, all the prices across my portfolio are changing every day. Um, and it, different door sizes are changing, predicated on demand, predicated on who's coming, who's not, local markets, vacancies. We have big software systems that are doing this, right? So uh, for us, we really want 60 plus thousand square feet to make it worth it, to make the buck really worth it. Now, I didn't start out doing 60 plus thousand. It was all small and I still own small facilities, mm. right? So we're pioneering, right, seamless automation or what I would call true automation, which is a seamless process for tenants to come in, rent everything else and never talk to another individual ever. Meaning they just use their iPhone right. and they don't, it's, they don't even need to go in to get a lock. They don't need to sign leases, nothing. The hardware on the asset and the software communicate together and allow access and allow utilization of the asset. And we're doing that on small storage facilities. Awesome. Awesome. So this way you basically minimize, you know, people require to be on the ground. Yes. And this, this, this offer you the opportunity to, to uh, buy asset in different um, market. Even, yes. Different markets, right? different sizes, different. And, you know, you got to remember commercial real estate is valued on net income. So if you buy an asset that makes a hundred, let's say um, it makes $50,000 a year net. 
Well, you have a manager that's running it. That's another $50,000 a year. So you paid, let's say $2 million for that asset. Well, just to take that uh, automated day one, that asset, you just gained $2 million in value. You doubled the net. Mm -hmm. So you doubled its value. Right. So um, it's right. a uh, incredibly uh, profitable system to use. Right. Um, all right. So if we were to touch a little on my on uh, uh, macro, because yes. um, you you just talk about you know the basically uh, commercial real estate is value based off the uh, the NOI, basically how productive you can bring in cash, yes. right? Um, so how, how does the bank or the lending facility look at this? Yes. Right. So to, so say, say, say today interest rate hike, say 1%, mm -hmm. how would it impact the decision of the lender? Yeah, so lenders are in a tough spot across the board. Um, this is not a good lending environment. They don't know the roadmap. So we just had is right before we were jumping on, right. The fed announced another, 75 basis points yeah. move up. Um, and also they, you know, just kind of announced that it's interest rates are going to remain high. Um, and bank spreads are bigger than whatever the fed does. So if you say the fed increases rates by 75 basis points, that doesn't mean loans go up by 75 basis points. Right? So mm -hmm. the banks are taking into consideration future elements as well. So spreads, the difference between their interest rate, their, what the interest rate is and what they're charging, we find to be all over the board right now. Um, they're definitely padded because banks are like, well, I can't give you a 7% interest rate when I think that we're going to be at a 9% interest rate in three months. So I'm going to have to charge right. you eight and a half, right, today. Uh, because if not, in just a matter of months, we're losing money. So, um, you know, when you look at the banks and what's going on in, with inflation and overall interest rates, they are concerned because I said value. What, what we're having right now is a massive, epic revaluation of markets. And it's really complicated to do because we don't have the corresponding drop. What that means is normally when you revalue assets, the assets are being revalued because of their ability to produce. Okay. Right mm -hmm. now, an asset hasn't changed in its ability to produce. Let's say a hundred thousand dollar net that hasn't changed. Well, when you take value on commercial assets, you're taking net income, net income, right? Does not include debt. That's not how we value things. Debt is not included in that. Now, that doesn't mean though to buyers, it's not real and it's not included. So now you have 3% debt, now 8% debt. That means that $100,000 at 8% may be $20,000. So all of a sudden, an asset that's producing $100,000, it was producing $100,000 six months ago, just lost 70% of its value in a, to a buyer. But it actually, nothing changed with the valuation. So the interest rates are wrecking havoc on markets because everybody's going, how do we value this, right? Like, what is the new value? Because my value hasn't changed mm -hmm. as an asset, but your ability to purchase in the market, I believe there's two markets. We have extrinsic and intrinsic value. Extrinsic value to me is the buying and selling of the assets. Intrinsic value is what the assets produce, okay? And the extrinsic value is in utter disarray right now. 
um, because of the buying and selling assets are gone haywire uh, because of the cost of capital. Now, the intrinsic value on a lot of assets haven't changed. Now, some it has mm -hmm. dramatically, right? Um, but not all of them. And so banks are looking at these things now saying, well, what are you buying at it? We're really concerned with its ability to pay the debt. So it's income to write the debt payment is a big deal. So they're looking at DCR. They're looking at uh, ability to cover these payments. And uh, um, you've got to remember, banks don't know that what they're doing. So a bank has no mm -hmm. idea how to run a storage facility, right? They don't know. They're not storage people. They're banks. So when they're mm -hmm. looking to loan out the money and they don't understand and they're confused, that makes them get tighter. That means they're bringing in money and they're like, well, I'm now deciding who I'm going to put this money with in times of uncertainty. So really what they're looking at is individuals' ability to execute on given business plans. And they're putting a lot of focus and effort on that and what the cost or coverage is on the debt. Awesome. So I think one point that, that, that you, you briefly touched on, you know, is, is, is awesome, right? Um, you've got to help the bank to understand how your business plan yes. is, right? Because the, with the exact same asset, um, one person going and educates the bank, nothing, the other one coming and give a full, you know, scope of the business plan, the, the bank may treat it differently and have different tightness. That's yes. What you're so your goal to a bank is to, t to make sure the bank thinks that you know way more about what you're doing than they do. If the bank thinks that you're not that smart and, you and they think that you maybe they're like, I think I know more about this than you do. They're not giving you the money, right? All they are, are allocators of the capital. Right. I got to get it to the most and the best effective hands that knows the most about it. That's how they really reduce risk, right? So when you go to a bank and you right. present well, you have a business plan that is well thought out. You actually are taking risks into consideration and not acting like there are no risks. You're, that bank's going to look at you and go, you know what you're doing, right? You have a great plan. I know how you're going to execute it. You're not doing it alone. You have all this help, things like that, as opposed to going to the bank and saying, hey, there's this great deal, right? Because the bank may turn you down and you go, well, they turned me down because it was a great deal. And I'm like, they didn't, they, or they said no to this deal. Maybe they don't like storage. They didn't say no to the deal. They said no to you. Okay. And a lot of people don't understand that. No to a team. They, they think that the banks, oh, they don't like mm -hmm. to lend to this asset class or anything else like that. No, they're scared to lend to you. They don't trust that this may be a good deal, but they're worried that in uncertain times, you can't operate it right. And the deal will become in danger because of something you did. So you've got to, when you walk into that bank, it's confidence. Okay. It, 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 it's confidence and it's a well thought out plan that looks at actual dangers and risks and mitigates them and points out things that even the bank probably didn't know. And people are like, well, I don't want to tell the bank about dangers that may exist that they don't know because that'll make it worse. And I'm like, no, it's worse if they find out about it and you didn't tell them because then they're never going to give you the money because you don't know the actual risk. And you did not share with them the risk they did not think about and you thought about. Yes. Right. Yeah. So I, I, we, we come in and I want to show right. them everything, so, the good, the bad, the ugly. And in fact, why, right. you know, I've had <clears throat> banks that are like, you know, 
oh yeah, we're glad you're doing uh, self-storage. This thing is so resist recession resistant, everything else like that. And I'll stop the bankers and I'll be like, hold on. No, there's a lot of embedded risk here. Now, let me show you what you probably don't understand. Why self-storage is risky right now. And you're sitting there going, like, I, I'm in this meeting and mm -hmm. one of my guys turned to kind of look at me. He's like, are you kidding me? They're telling me how they want to loan to this asset, how they love it and everything. You stop them and are like, let me show you why this asset's not good, right? Why would anyone in the right mind do that? Well, the reason is because I say, look at all this danger. Now, that's why I bought this property is because there's danger here. And this property doesn't embed all this danger and we can and we can uh, protect ourselves against the danger. And this is what we're doing to it. Then the bank's like, holy cow, you're smart. I didn't even know that. And you're, you knew about dangers that we could, our underwriters didn't even know and see, and you've done things to protect yourself. Let's give him the money. So it, it like a lot of people think you awesome. shoot yourself in the foot. You don't, you, you, you point yourself out as the expert and that's what you want to do. Right, right. That's your opportunity to show yes. to show the bank you know what you're doing. Awesome, AJ. So um, the the other point that that you briefly touch on is that um, you know uh, uh, you know when when we are looking at the commercial real estate uh, seller, usually would look at how how much income it can bring in, but the buyer also needs to consider the That's debt. That's correct. Right. So basically, there's a gap. Yes. Like. The seller won this price, and the buyer wouldn't wouldn't want to pay because of the the debt debt servicing, and that's where the seller like you know seller financing come in. Yes, right. Um, okay, can can you give give us a little you know uh, content on 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 how you see this gap is going yeah. moving forward, especially in the next half half a year year, and 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 how seller financing can help or how it's going to turn. Yes. To so when we look at the marketplace as a whole, there are inflection points that change, changes the means of operating within capital markets. And we've hit an inflection point where assets value, right? Um, and the cost of money have gone inverse, meaning that uh, they sell for a five cap, but now money is 8%. So your cost of money is higher than the cap rate is. That is negative. That's a negative right. spread right there, right? So the owner has a tough decision mm -hmm. on this negative spread. Either I have to change my value. So I have to go from a five cap to a 10 cap. Now there's a positive spread between the 8% and the 10 cap, mm -hmm. or I have to figure something else out. Now that's where seller finance mm -hmm. comes in. And that's why this is the perfect time to get seller financing. Why? Because you come in and say, they can say, well, I, I can give the seller an option. I'll pay you a 10 cap if I have to finance it. If you finance it though, for me at 4%, I'll pay you a five cap. So I'll give you 30% down, but you have to finance it or I'll give you 10% down or there's a bunch of different ways, but you have to finance it. Right. And it has to be mm -hmm. financed at 4% in order for me to pay you that. Then the seller has a choice. I can get all my money up front, but I get less of it or mm -hmm. I get more of it, but I don't get it all up front. That's the choice. Mm -hmm. And sellers are yep. looking at that saying, well, I want to make sure I can get all my value out of it. So now I'm interested in seller financing.
because I, I think, you know, maybe not anytime soon, but in three to four years, interest rates are probably going to go down below eight and a half percent. I don't want to lose all that value. So, all right, I'll sell or finance it. I still get this huge chunk of cash and then I'm getting money every single month, which is great, right? Now I'm getting passive income, everything else like that. So our interest in seller financing has exploded over the last few months. Wow, awesome. So um, basically, if you want seller financing, the seller got to have equity. Right. If 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 the seller doesn't have equity and yes, most it doesn't of them work. are dead, then they're stuck. Then that's yeah. a bad spot. So those are going right, right, right. So basically, those are those are going to be a four seller if they if they yes, can, those are distressed can, assets. You know, and those are what. So I'm rolling out a fund yeah. in the next two weeks, and we are going out to buy distressed assets. And people ask, well, so oh, distressed assets? You mean assets are failing? And I'm like, no, but investors are. Like, I don't understand. Well. Let me share. So I bought an asset three years ago, right? I paid $5 million for it. I did interest only and I didn't pay the, pay the principal because I thought in 2022, I'm going to sell this thing at a four cap and I'm going to make all this money. Well, 22 mm -hmm. came around, interest rates rise to 8%. I can't sell it at a four cap anymore, but guess what I have to do? I have to refinance. Now, I bought an asset at 5 million that I'm refinancing at 8%. It's not worth that. So the bank comes back and says, guess what's not in line? Your debt to coverage ratio doesn't work anymore. You, this asset can't pay the interest payments. So we're going to cut off 30% of your value. So that means you have to bring money to the table. Yeah. And this is why I say the number one reason that mm -hmm. assets fail are investors, not the assets. The assets were perfectly fine. They didn't even change. And that's hard for a lot of people to understand. They think when, when assets fell or people go bankrupt, that it was because the asset itself stopped producing income. The vast majority of the time, that's not true. It's the investor mm -hmm. failed. They, put, they did something bad. They put a right. bad structure on it. What we're going to see is good assets failing because of bad structures. That in lies the opportunistic mm -hmm. approach because that intrinsic value, its ability to produce income didn't change. So I get to walk in now and buy something that was worth 5 million cheap. a year ago, cheap. Mm -hmm. And it, but it didn't change. It's still producing the exact same amount of income. Because you're solving the seller's property. Yep. Right. And the sellers so. are forced. They don't have a choice. So they have to do something. They exactly. have to refinance exactly. or they have to sell. The bank will not allow them to not make that choice. Mm -hmm. In the in the past three three months, um, there are a lot of operators, especially in multifamily space, they are doing this called cash in refinance, right? Because they may, may be in a bridge loan, they may be in a short-term loan, and if they don't refi out, they will get you they will go underwater right they won't they won't cash flow yeah and you know they need to do the capital call and do this so-called cash in refi that's right so yeah i mean um when 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 investors are looking at deal they need to at least have a, a good projections on what they think they're going i mean this asset or this market is going into and the you know uh, the 
budget the uh, potential interest rate change or the you know larger environment change. Uh, so you just talk about that you're putting together a fund yes. that you're going to go out to buy those distract assets. Correct. You want to uh, uh, give us a little more introductions on what would be your target and um, things like that. And, and if people are interested, how can they, they reach out to you? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it really, um, let's back up just a second. I want to, I, 60% of our entire portfolio plus is owned by me and my partner, who is my father. We've been working together. We started the companies together. Um, we own five, six different companies together, him and I, um, we started, uh, most of them. Um, and, uh, we didn't take investors ever. Um, I, uh, didn't take investors until about four years ago or three years ago, uh, because over five years ago, I became paralyzed from head to toe. I became a quadriplegic. I was hooked on life support and I was fired from my job in the hospital, hooked to tubes. And I have four children. My wife doesn't work. And um, my real estate that we had been buying saved our financial life. So it was after I became paralyzed from my eyes down. I was hooked to breathing machines. I couldn't eat, drink, speak, nothing for months. Um, and then I was sent home paralyzed in bed. My brother moved in with me to help my wife take care of me. Um, and I didn't worry about losing my home. We just had our fourth child. He was three months cutie. And, um, you know, we weren't worried about losing the home, my wife having to work, anything else like that because of real estate. So it was after that, that I said, all right, I made a promise in the hospital. I'm going to teach. Right. And I'm going to allow others to participate in this. And so that's why we started taking money. And so we do that in the form of syndications. And all it means is we call it a ride along. People are just riding along, investing mm -hmm. with us in exactly what I'm investing in, doing it the same way that I've been doing for over 17, 18 years now. And when we look at that process, there's a few different modes of operation. So we do it in funds, people invest with us. Then we go out and we find these assets that are air quotations distressed. They're not distressed financially at all, right? They're perfectly mm -hmm. fine. They're great assets, but the market got in trouble. So the market's selling them at a discount and we can buy them. And then we get this right. huge, massive upside and we can own them forever. So we can refinance, take all our money out and profits tax-free, and we don't ever have to sell it. So we always, us and our investors get long-term mm -hmm. income um, and equity but yet we got all our money out in the first three to five years and got all our, and got profits on it. Uh, so that's our, our mode. That's how we scale. That's how, how we build. So yeah, we're doing that in the next two weeks and you can go Cedar Creek wealth is my company's site. It's my firm that I started out of a wheelchair. Um, and we allow uh, people to invest with us through that company. Mm -hmm. And uh, AJ, uh, what about your uh, podcast and, and yeah? The book? So if you're interested in self storage, I give away everything for free, all the information, everything. I I have a book. You got to you got to pay like nine bucks on Amazon for the book. But uh, the podcast, uh, self storage income and growing wealth in self storage, it's the number one largest podcast in the world on self storage and the number one best selling book in self storage. Um, you can go check them out. Growing wealth in self storage. AJ Osborne. 
type that in. Yeah, you're going to find it. Um, and then the podcast, Self Storage Income, AJ Osborne, and it's weekly. And we dive everything you need to know about storage. We open up our playbook and everything else so anybody can follow it. Awesome, awesome, um, guys. If if you if you are tuning in in our episode today, um, you you must have learned a lot from from AJ's on self storage. But but there are a lot more content about self storage that you can find in AJ's podcast. So make so make sure if you're interested, just go check it out. Educate yourself before you you make any financial decision. Especially, don't be one of those sellers who are forced to sell like 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 the seller that AJ's are going to buy from. That's right. right? So uh, education is a huge piece. Make sure you do that before you take action and then make sure you take action. AJ was, was the, was, was a friend that I was uh, very fortunate to be able to meet in one of the conference I, I attend. Um, I really resonate with his energy and how he um, explained the projects and explained his, um, you know, business model. Um, I, I, I personally have learned a lot from him. So AJ, thanks again. I really appreciate you coming in today, you know, especially offering so much content, valuable content. I know you're a busy hey, man. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. Hey, I appreciate you having me on, man.